This is Emergency Medicine Match Advice, sponsored by Academic Life and Emergency Medicine, a podcast series designed to help medical students and residents strategically navigate the process of applying for residency in emergency medicine or to EM-sponsored fellowship programs. I'm your host, Mike Gisani from Stanford University. Let's get started. Welcome to Emergency Medicine Match Advice, sponsored by Academic Life and Emergency Medicine, and it's Editor-in-Chief, Santa's favorite elf, Dr. Michelle Lin from the University of California, San Francisco. Ho, ho, ho. Happy holidays. I'm excited about this podcast. Special December edition this month. Um, We are back, Michelle, with a new episode of EM Match Advice, Mm -hmm. a deep dive into the slow. Yes. And it's pronounced slow, not slowy for all of our listeners and in particular our discussants today. And we have a great panel of three outstanding program directors to discuss all of the intricacies of the slow. The first is Dr. Abra Fant, the incoming program director at Northwestern University. Hello, Abby. Hello. Dr. David Gordon, clerkship director extraordinaire from Duke University. Hi, David. Hello there. And Dr. Michael Takis, the program director at the University of Iowa. Thanks for joining us, Mike. Thank you for having me. All right. We are talking about the slow. What is it and why do we care? Let me first say what SLOW stands for, if you don't know. The SLOW is the Standardized Letter of Evaluation. It used to be called the SLOR, the Standardized Letter of Recommendation, should you be PubMedding any literature about this and look back more than five or six years ago. And then you'll hear the term eSLOW, or Electronic Standardized Letter of Evaluation. That's just an electronic portal system by which we upload the SLOW. So for the rest of this conversation, we're just going to call it the SLOW and make it simple. In short, it is the letter of recommendation for emergency medicine. If you're going into EM, you have to have at least one. So in this episode, we're going to discuss the slow. How do you get one? Who should write it? And what does it all mean? And to take us on our journey first, we're going to turn to Chicago and Dr. Fant, who is going to tell us about authorship in the slow. Who writes a slow? So it's a really great question that doesn't actually have a super simple answer. But for our purposes, the recommendation is that it is written by an emergency medicine faculty member that is affiliated with a residency. Generally speaking, it's someone involved in education. Uh, A lot of the research has shown that the people who have the most reliable ways of assessing medical students and rotators are really the folks that have done this a lot and have experience at writing. So it really should be someone like the clerkship director or the program director who's really done this quite a bit, as opposed to a random faculty member that you might have had a really good shift with. And even better than an individual person is actually a group letter. So it gets a perspective of several people who've worked with you. And the group letter being termed sometimes a department slow. So written on behalf of the whole faculty in the department. Is that where you're? That's correct. Yeah. All right. So how does a school write one of these department slows? So let's say, you know, a student rotates for 11 or 12 shifts in a, in a month, but we're talking about a group letter that's written on behalf of everyone. How does that process play out? How does your department write their department slow, for instance? So the way that we go about writing it is, number one, faculty fill out end-of-shift evaluations after working with a medical student, uh, whether that's here, uh, one of our students at Northwestern, or a rotating student. At the end of the rotation, all of those comments are sort of collated together. 
and the education faculty, which includes the program director, the assistant program directors, um, our clerkship director, as well as both our residency coordinators and the clerkship coordinator, all sit down, review the comments from the end of shift evaluations, and come up with basically what we think that that evaluation sort of summary statement should be. Uh, the clerkship director then actually writes it down and sends it back to the program director who makes edits, and that is what creates the commentary in the bottom section of the slow, uh, as well as everyone agrees on the ranking in those sections of the slow. Got it. So who should not write a slow? I assume that there are people out there who, who really would not make the best authors. Yes. So first of all, someone who has never written a slow is not going to be able to provide you with a reliable slow that program directors are going to take particularly seriously when they're looking at your file. So a brand new faculty member, um, certainly someone that is not an emergency faculty should not write one. They can't actually even get access to the system. But an individual faculty member who is not experienced at writing these is not going to be able to provide the norm referenced uh, numbers that are really required to make get a meaningful slow for the program directors. So when we see that they've ranked only one student this year, it really isn't terribly meaningful what they say about you. So it really shouldn't be a random uh, attending that you just happen to have a good shift with. Got it. How many slows does a student need? Oh, that's a tricky question. Yeah. I would say for most programs, one slow is really preferable, at least one slow, because it shows that you have worked in a department that has residents, that they understand what that work is going to be like when you get out into your residency. And so they can provide the best assessment of what you, you might be able to do in residency. That being said, I know that there are people who are out there at programs that don't have residencies, and so they can't get a slow as the standard is written. That doesn't mean that we won't give you an interview, but it's much easier for us to be able to go through your file and make heads or tails of it with at least one slow. Beyond that, you're starting to do a lot of rotations and a lot of money. I don't know that it necessarily adds a ton. Um, I would definitely encourage people not to do more than two rotations to get two slows. Okay, so that, that was going to be my next question. If Should students only submit slows at, at the expense of any other letters of recommendation? Uh, I would say two is really where it starts to lose a lot of its glamour and appeal for me when I'm reviewing files. Once I start reading three and four slows, it gets to be a little bit overwhelming and quite frankly redundant. I think two is reasonable, three at the very most, and that at least saves you one more spot for someone who is not necessarily involved in emergency medicine that may be able to provide other aspects of you that are important. So whether that's a research mentor that you've worked closely with, perhaps it's a primary care doctor that you spent a lot of time with clinically in your first, second, third years, I think that those actually still do add a lot of depth to your application. And I wouldn't try to fill it up with slows just for the sake of having them there if you have that person who can provide a really good evaluation for you outside of it. Yeah, I like reading those letters. They, they add a lot of uh, color commentary to the, to the student's file. I, I enjoy them a lot. All right. Great. Thank you so much. Let's turn our attention away from who's writing these slows and get into the meat of them. What does the slow consist of, Dr. Gordon? Let's walk the students through the slow if you can. Absolutely. First, I want all students to know that the slow is freely available online. You can either find it on the CORD website or Google it, and you'll be able to look at the form. But the highlights are the, the ABCDs, essentially. Part A is background. This outlines the nature of the relationship, how long the applicant's been known, and what capacity, whether it's advising or direct clinical observation, which rotation it is, what the student's grade was, 
as well as the distribution of grades for that institution as summer pass fail. And there are different proportions of honors that are distributed that help provide context to that student's grade. Part B are what are called qualifications. They're kind of like domains of competence, clinical reasoning, work ethic, communication, and then this notion amount of guidance, which is a little bit of preparing a program to say this student may need a little extra resources for the program to decide whether they can provide that uh, type of support. Then there's a global assessment, part C. This is kind of the big picture bird's eye view. It uses two anchor points. First is compared to other peers. How would you overall rank the competitiveness of this applicant? And then it asks letter writers to reflect on or anticipate how they think the applicant will rely on their rank list. Um, these typically align, but sometimes they don't. That might reflect that there wasn't a personality fit. Um, and sometimes there may be different aspirational goals or career goals between the applicant um, and the program. And lastly is, is the narrative, which is brief in nature, kind of further highlights some of the strengths and weaknesses, may highlight some areas of concern if they exist, but overall kind of provide a summation of the overall impression of the student. So the slow has been around a long time, and I dare say that I was the first class that had to uh, produce slows when I was applying, and God knows I'm, I've been around a while. Why has it endured so long? What is preferential about these slows rather than just a narrative uh, letter of recommendation like every other specialty? Yeah, I think emergency medicine has really fully embraced the slow. Um, not that it's perfect, but I, I think most people feel it, it has helped the process. I'm going to evoke the words of Dr. Love and other colleagues who have been involved in its development and refinement. They wrote a commentary on this in academic medicine, and they highlight three features that resonate with me. One, the slow is time efficient. Uh, it's very visual. It uses checkboxes. It makes it easy for writers to communicate what they want to say and readers to quickly and rapidly get a sense of what writers are trying to communicate. Two, it's standardized. We're all using it. So that makes it easier for comparisons across different schools and institutions because we're using the same form and similar language. And three, uh, it's desirable for programs because it does offer a differentiation to not only understand how a student does, but how they may compare to their, their peers. And that helps programs decide who to interview. Yeah. I mean, if we look to the future and a world where schools are becoming largely pass-fail and we're thinking about taking away the step one score, it's really going to be very few items of the file that discriminate between students, and this might be one of the, the few left. You hinted that it's an imperfect tool, which means we get to talk about perhaps ways to improve the slow and, and a little bit of uh, interesting controversy here. What, what are the negatives? If it's so great, why is it still somewhat imperfect? Yeah, so I think the most relevant thing to this conversation is the fact that the scales are normative. So what that means is the rankings are based on peer comparison versus a predefined standard that you select an applicant as meeting the best match. So we call this normative ranking where you're doing peer to peer. And that I think there's some disagreement and diversity of opinion about whether that's the best way to go. So theoretically, if you have three excellent students and you strictly adhere to a normative scale that demands you divide applicants into thirds, you're going to have to find some way to divide all these excellent students into thirds. And that may force you to differentiate them in a way that you don't feel right or is correct. And that can build a little tension. So as a student, I want to say that might be very frustrating to hear, wait a minute, I could be excellent, but be put in the bottom bucket. But overall, I think what we've seen in the evidence that even with the new ESLO system, 
on average, only 10% of programs are using that bottom bucket. So they are prioritizing representing the student fairly rather than being forced into this uh, normative distribution. And also for programs that do use the bottom tier more frequently, they tend to be larger and they also share how often they use the bucket. So that makes it more clear that, you know, they just have a large population of, of learners and in their narrative, you can still be in the bottom tiers and still be a very qualified applicant. Yeah, for sure. Stay tuned to the end of the episode and then I'll say there is some hope for students who end up in that, that category. Before we close with you, can you just tell us how your school completes the slow? I think it's just interesting to hear the different methods. Yeah, absolutely. Just to, again, I don't know what we do represents how all programs do. We basically wait until towards the end of August or September when we've had several groups of rotators with us. At that time, we will meet as a group. We have core faculty and we have our program leadership. We've set up student schedules to make sure that they have a good number of shifts with these core writing groups. We meet in person to kind of develop a little bit of a consensus over impressions and rankings. There will then be a lead uh, writer. My shop, it tends to be me, uh, but also with help of my fellow faculty colleagues. We will generate the letter. We will put it into ESLO. We will then review it together uh, as a final group and then finalize it and submit it to um, ARIS. I think it's just interesting that you know so much work and good due diligence goes into these letters. A student should be very pleased to know that, that they're taken so seriously. All right. So we are going to close with Dr. Takis telling us all about the recent literature related to the slow. You know, it's, it's interesting if you PubMed this, there were some articles back about 10 years ago, and then there was sort of quiet out on the scene. And now all of a sudden people are doing research on the slow again, and there's some really interesting findings in the last couple of years. So uh, maybe I'll, I'll throw it to you and you can pick out your favorite research study to start with. Sure. The first one I looked at it was the uh, ranking of the East, uh, students by the thirds. And Alexis Pelletier-Bui from Cooper Medical School did a nice job on this. It was published in Academic Emergency Medicine, Education and Training. So she surveyed 99 programs, and she found that 54% of the programs self-reported that they loosely adhere to the slow guidelines, whereas 39% strictly adhere to these guidelines. So a student rotating at a program, they're not going to really know too much. Is this program loosely adhering to their guidelines or strictly adhering to the guidelines? And what does it mean for me? But what they found is there's no different in match rates from programs that strictly adhere to the guidelines or ones that loosely adhere to the guidelines. And from that, only 5% of the programs were on the self-report said they would not interview you if you fall into the lower third. So students shouldn't worry about if they do fall into the lower third about not matching or not getting interviews. Programs are well aware of using the slow to look at all applicants and applicants will be looked at fairly. Lastly, from that article, she points out that why don't you match? It's students that have poor grades, personality issues, or failed USMLE exams and not due to, due to a bad slow. That's actually a great message for students because this is the one part of their application that they really don't have much knowledge of. So they speculate quite a bit. So that's really a great message for them. How about the right number of slows and where students should get them? The right number of slows, this was also just published in Academic Emergency Medicine, Education and Training. Megan Boyson Osborne from UC Irvine had a really nice article, and, and this was actually featured by Dr. Promise in an editorial on the article. So students, she found, do best on their first slow. And as they do more and more away rotations, their quality of their slows go down. And so this sort of backs up what Abby had said of her recommendation 
to get one slow for sure, and then maybe two. But when you start getting into the threes, and, and I even seen some students with fours, you're really defeating the purpose and you could be you know, hurting yourself. And this could be due to a variety of reasons. Student fatigue is one, or maybe the expectations of programs are very high when they find out this is your third rotation. So bottom line is, I think the right number of slows that I give advice for is two, one in your home institution and one in an aware institution. And last, lastly, I'll also comment, if you don't have a flow from your home institution, it looks odd to a program evaluating you. Just for example, I just recently reviewed a student who had four slows from all away institutions, and his home institution has a high-quality residency program. He had no slow from them. So it does create some questioning by program directors why that would be the case. Yeah, that is a mystery. We're going to all want to know what happens to that student. Let's turn to bias in this evaluation. You know, there's tons of bias in corporate America when we talk about evaluations of employees and recommendations of other employees and how we select employees. And there's no difference with the slow. There's certainly an imperfect tool when it comes to implicit bias and human error. Maybe we can first talk about the impact of gender on the slow. Are there any differences? There are differences. There's been a lot of research in this subject. Uh, not only to emergency medicine, but all other uh, medical specialties. And generally speaking, the, the research in emergency medicine has been somewhat similar. Dr. Lee at Northwestern, she looked at a thousand slows and she found similar that females had more descriptors in their slows on teamwork, helpfulness, and compassion. And that's what's been uh, known already in the literature. But she would also found is that there's also more words describing females' intelligence and skill. The good news is that Although there are, there are more words and for females on their slows, overall, there was not much a significant difference in gender bias in, in her study. So I think that the training that letter writers get through CORD and through ALEM has been really beneficial in helping that, but it's something we always have to be aware of. And certainly her work of evaluating the slows at Northwestern is, you know, shows that they do a great job there. And a second article I found, the one written by Dr. Danielle Miller from Stanford, she describes differences in the language in the uh, slows by gender. And they actually looked at word counts and, and the type of words written. And it turns out women have more words in their slows than men on average, uh, 180 words versus 171. While this difference may seem small when, when you're dealing with a research project involving, say, a thousand slows, it's, uh, it's significant. So the words describing social attributes and ability words were found more commonly in women, but no other significant differences. So again, I think schools are generally doing well. You have to be really aware that gender bias can exist and you need to try to avoid gender bias language. And one of the recommendations I would like to give, and I know you're a big fan of this too, Mike, is to audit your slows before sending them out. And that's something that faculty can do. They can have readers come in and re review for gender bias language. And this way, all slows get sent out in a fair way. Yeah, that was a hot topic at SAM 2019. There were several presentations on how to reduce gender biasing language from various evaluations and certainly from letters of recommendation. I want to just point out, Michelle, that just to show how real we are here on EM Match Advice, it's an interview day here at Stanford. And there, there's a normal number of students here, but it sounds like a circus is walking past my office. So shout out to the 12 students interviewing here today because, man, you are loud. Um, all right, let's close with uh, impact of race. Is, are there evidence of bias with regards to race? There is, unfortunately. So Dr. Hobson from University of Michigan, 
she looked at this, and this was published in Academic Medicine. She looked at both SBI and the SLO. So the good news for all faculty and students is the SBI is gone. And so uh, uh, I won't go on that topic. Let's have a moment of silence. Okay. We need a sound effect, Michelle. But for the slow, it's still here, and I think we'll be here for many years to come. So they found that slows, generally speaking, favor females over males slightly. But they also found is that it favors white applicants over black applicants. And so that is a certainly concern by everyone in emergency medicine education. And at Iowa, and I know uh, all the programs represented in this podcast, we all do some sort of form of implicit bias training. And so that's what really recommended for writers to avoid gender bias and race bias in writing these letters. And, and that's some training that can definitely help. Yeah, it, it definitely was a statistically significant difference. I think it was a, you know, a moderate amount of impact, one that you know, we should all take note of and we should try to reduce any impact. But um, all is not lost on the slow. I think if we train our letter writers correctly, much of that can be mitigated. Michelle, what do you think about this whole slow business? What questions do you have for our panel? Well, first of all, I learned that it is called slow and not slowy, which is how I've been pronouncing it. So thank you for that correction. But the bigger question I have is about the slow. It's can you get it from, for instance, let's say you're at a clerkship rotation where there's no emergency medicine residency program, or let's say this is your third rotation, but you didn't want to do a core EM rotation and you want to do an ultrasound rotation. How does that work with the whole letter writing and slow business? I can't answer that question, Michelle, because it's a great one for students to be aware of, because there are some faculty who are not aware of these alternate or specialized slows. So if you rotate at a clerkship where there is no residency program, on the core website, there is a special slow form for those faculty uh, who basically are not involved in ranking decisions. So that's why that form exists. I suspect most clerkship directors in that position are aware of that form. But for pediatric emergency medicine, not all PCM faculty may be aware of that form. So that's a great one for students to bring to the attention of that faculty member. And the other ones are for toxicology, EMS electives, wilderness medicine. And so definitely be on the lookout for those alternate slow forms. Perfect. Thank you so much. All right. Well, I think that brings to a close our deep dive into the slow. God knows there couldn't be any more questions to ask about this high stakes letter of recommendation. So let's change topics and go to Michelle's favorite segment of EM Match Advice. Yay, the commercials. This is going to be a fun, tell me something I don't know about your program, because we're going to start with Northwestern, where I was the program director. So this is going to be a tough one, Dr. Fant. Tell me something I don't know about the Northwestern University Emergency Medicine Program. So something that you don't know, because it's occurred since you've left, is that there's now a pathway for any residents at McGall, which is our sponsoring institution in Northwestern, to actually obtain their MBA concurrent with their residency. So it's a special shortened MBA program that you can complete while you are doing residency. So if you're into administration, you think you want to have an MBA, but you didn't get it uh, concurrent with your MD, come and check us out. That's a great example of something I didn't know. That's amazing. And who's in my office? Tell me that. There's no one in your office. Ah, oh, there we go. All right. That I knew. That I knew. All right. Students, I uh, have a special place in my heart for the Purple Palace. You've got to go check it out. Wonderful training program and will be well uh, steered by its incoming program director. 
All right, next, let's hear a little bit about the Duke program from its clerkship director. Tell us something we don't know about Duke University's emergency medicine program, Dr. Gordon. One thing that I'd like to highlight is we are a three-year program, but recently we created a flex track. So if a resident is very interested in pursuing a academic year, we can build that into their training program and expand into a four-year plan. So, uh, so far, we've had a resident do a basic science research year, uh, which was extremely productive. And this last year, we've had a resident who's very interested in global health and built in an extra year to pursue that. So we're excited to support residents who want to take some extra time uh, in the training environment. Kudos to you guys. I did a three plus one. There's not that many three plus one programs left out there. It's nice to see that format coming back around. Great job. So we have had Duke featured on the program before. Dr. Broder was here not all that long ago. It's a wonderful program with great research and definitely on the up and up these days. Students, you got to check out Duke. And then finally, we're going to turn back to the Midwest and to a program I visited once long ago. Dr. Takis, tell us something we don't know about the University of Iowa. We're a university program. We um, started a new uh, requirement for research in our residency, and all uh, residents must complete a hypothesis-generated research project as part of their academic scholarly project. And so we do a lot to support their research. We send residents to a minimum of two conferences throughout their residency. We provide extra training in conference, and we have a big research support staff that can train them uh, how to do high-quality research projects that are accomplishable in residency. And that's been a big success for our residency program, and we're pretty proud of that. Yeah, so smart to pair the requirement with a formal curriculum and support. That's really a a wonderful feature of your program. And, you know, students, I'll tell you, when I took a quick tour through Iowa, it's one of the prettiest public hospitals I think I've ever seen. And their children's hospital now overlooks their football stadiums, really amazing resources and really wonderful people. So check out the University of Iowa. Michelle, thanks for having us for our deep dive today. Um, Panelists, thanks for joining us, and good luck to the students who are mid-season out on the recruitment trail. Happy holidays. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Emergency Medicine Match Advice. You can view any of our episodes for free on Alium's YouTube channel, or if you prefer, listen to the episodes as Alium Podcasts on SoundCloud. Also, check out summaries of our episodes as blog posts on Alium.com and in the publication A User's Guide to the Alium EM Match Advice Series in the June 2017 issue of the Western Journal of Emergency Medicine. We love to hear from our listeners. Post your questions or comments for any of our episodes on Alium.com. Thanks for joining us.